Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, we have Mark Weicker back with us, who is an expert in the area of school law. Mark represents students, teachers, university faculty, and administrators. Uh, Mark, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. Mark, we left uh, off last time uh, talking about the different opportunities for students in Ohio in, in the um, uh, you know, uh, high school, middle school, elementary school uh, students. Uh, maybe you could refresh us again. What, what kind of opportunities are there? Where can they go to school? Sure, yeah. There are a few different um, uh, types of schools in Ohio. School choice is becoming a little bit more prevalent and available, especially after COVID. Um, but really, start with traditional public schools. So these are school districts of residence, uh, the place where you pay the tax. And uh, if you reside in that district, you have a right to attend, and you have a right to attend tuition-free. And in fact, the school has to accept you so long as you reside in the district. Those are state and federally funded, uh, what everyone knows as their local school district. Um, they're subject to you know state and federal laws, too. Uh, they're public entities, public records laws, uh, due process for students, so on and so forth. Um, those districts, a lot of times, will offer open enrollment, and that's a choice that a district can make based on capacity, based on you know, revenue, so on and so forth. But it's up to the school districts in Ohio if they want to offer open enrollment, which would allow students who reside in adjacent districts to attend um, through a process, application process for open enrollment. So hmm. if I reside in, um, you know, um, a, a suburb and there's a suburb next door that looks attractive and they offer open enrollment, I could apply and attend. That's also tuition free. Um, some reshifting of funding would go from one school to the other, but um, that is really an option that um, you know students and parents could could consider. Um, and then, of course, we have charter schools, also known as community schools in Ohio. It may be a surprise to some people that these are public schools. Um, there's a lot of secrecy um, around what happens there because they're often managed by a management company, which is private. But the school itself is a public school. But the, uh, the idea with charter schools is that they are available largely in urban districts, underperforming districts, although they, are, um, uh, they have been established in other places around the state. But uh, charter schools um, are um, subject to less laws than traditional public schools. It's a little bit of an experiment. Uh, and they have uh, freedom of curriculum. They open for schools for things like physical education and arts, and they open schools for things like music uh, or college prep. So sometimes they have these curricular themes, uh, and uh, it's they uh, determine their you know enrollment criteria, and uh, that is another option. A lot of charter schools in Ohio are online schools. Uh, ECOT is the most notorious that no longer no longer with us but Ohio Virtual Academy and some others exist in Ohio where you could really attend. They, they open their enrollment to statewide students, so you could really attend online through a charter school. 
These are also tuition-free, like I mentioned. The, the funding is redirected, or at least a portion of the funding is redirected from your traditional public school district of residence to the charter school if you enroll at a charter school. The next, I guess, option for students and parents would be a private school. So private schools, you do pay tuition um, or have to get that uh, funded through a scholarship or something else. But private schools um, are not state-funded. They, um, you know, have um, also have a little bit more freedom and uh, the curriculum that they offer, but they do have to abide by the Ohio operating standards. Their teachers are licensed just like they are in a charter school or in a, a traditional public school. Uh, but private schools can also be religious schools, parochial schools, of course. And that's the big difference between uh, both traditional public schools and uh, charter schools that, that the private school can be religious. So part of the theme or the or the instruction can be focused around religion. And that's a choice uh, that you can attend. Charter, uh, excuse me, private schools have the ability then to, you know, uh, accept the students they want or dismiss the students they want. Mm-hmm. Um, some tra- uh, some private schools that exist also have themes on, on who they're going to serve. For instance, there are uh, private schools that exist only to help students with autism. There are private private schools that exist only to help students with ADHD. And then to round out the choices, John, um, uh, they um, uh, other options, of course, you have career tech schools, which service you know traditional public school districts for mostly for high school kids leading into uh, middle school now. Uh, and you have homeschooling, which is really an exception to attendance at school in the first place. Homeschooling is, you know, schooling by the parents or someone the parents, um, you know, hire to uh, provide the schooling. And what you're asking for with homeschooling, not to be conflated with e-schooling, homeschooling is instruction by the parent or somebody the parent chooses. And you're asking for the school district of residence to excuse you from attendance. So you're really off the rolls at that point, although you do have to take state assessments or at least provide some alternative assessment to, to uh, let the school district know that your child's doing something and making some progress. That, that pretty much rounds it out. So, um, Jack, I don't know if I've told you, but when I was in high school, so this is going back to the mid to late 70s, uh, we moved to Columbus. We lived on the north end, and I was attending the Westerville schools. Hmm. And then um, Columbus annexed the area where I lived, and the next year I was going to Columbus Public Schools, which didn't make my parents that happy because we moved into that area thinking we were going to be in the Westerville School District, and now we're in the Columbus School District. Although I did go to Beechcroft High School for a year, which was a wonderful school, and, and um, at, at the time was great to be a part of that. Uh, we decided that, um, my parents mostly, that I would go to a different school. Now, you know that I was an athlete in high school. I do so, recall hearing yeah. that. Yeah. So we had a few suitors. Can, can I put my uh, my punchline in there? <laughs> sure. <laughs> that was 40 years and 40 pounds ago. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so um, uh, DeSales uh, was a uh, very interesting choice uh, mm-hmm. for us. We ended up not going there because uh, it wanted money for us to go there and my dad was not going to pay tuition to go to DeSales but DeSales had the ability to recruit and always has and always had fantastic sports programs uh, because you know it wasn't uh, limited to any uh, real area as far as recruiting um, athletes and I'm sure other students academic uh, points too 
so we talked to um, the people in Westerville and in Gahanna. And um, now to go to those schools, there wasn't open enrollment at that time. We had to actually move our residents, and we ended up uh, moving to Gahanna, and I finished out my high school in Gahanna. So having said that, Mark, if there was a voucher system in place back then, could we have used that potentially to go to DeSales and offset some of that cost? Uh, absolutely. And there are uh, the voucher system in Ohio known as EdChoice. They, they uh, do have criteria. Uh, for what uh, uh, whether students are eligible to receive the scholarship, so Ed Choice scholarship voucher, same thing. But um, there's a couple different criteria, and uh, it started um, the program started as a uh, for students in lower performing districts. Um, the students would get an amount of money, like a stipend or a scholarship, uh, to attend or use to take their money to a private school, and um, that has always been the lowest performing 20% of schools. So uh, Columbus City is usually there. Um, it's actually school buildings, in fact. So if you would attend one of the lowest performing school buildings, um, then you would be entitled to receive the voucher. The voucher today is worth $5,500 for K through eight and $7,500 for nine through 12. And um, so assuming you resided in one of those low-performing uh, areas where the building you would attend is low-performing, you get the voucher. Now, it's since been expanded um, to have an income eligibility separate from where you reside. So um, that was initially just the, you know, residing in a low-performing district. But now, um, if you, uh, if your income level is, um, it, it, the uh, income level is at or below 250% of the federal poverty level, then you're also entitled to receive a voucher. And so to give you an idea, 250% of the fe federal poverty level would be about $75,000 for a family of four. So it wouldn't affect a lot of families, but if you're below that threshold, then you and your siblings would be entitled to a voucher. Um, and uh, there is some serious discussion both in the House uh, and now more recently in the Senate uh, about with this newest budget bill, which should be through about any day, um, to the House has proposed that they expand the uh, vouchers to 450%. So you're looking at roughly $130,000 um, that you can make for a family of four and still receive the voucher. And the Senate has proposed universal vouchers, which is um, a little bit mind-blowing, but um, that is the current proposal for vouchers for next school year. And I'm getting a little beyond your question, John, but uh, to answer it, yes, you know, if vouchers would have existed in their current form, 20% lowest performing districts, or you know, under that $75,000 threshold for a family of four, you'd be entitled to take that money to the sales and and pay at least part of your tuition. With that, wait a minute. With the Senate proposal, you said it would be a universal voucher. I'm interpreting that to mean no income restriction. Correct. Wow. Which um, uh, number one expands vouchers way beyond what the original intention would be. Now, again, advocates will say, you know. Parents and students should be able to choose and take their money to the school that best, best suits them. The, um, the interesting aspect of this, so it's, it was, um, 
I remember initially lowest performing schools, then uh, you know 250% of the federal poverty level, now proposed in the House 450% of the federal poverty level, now the most recent, and, and um, there's a really good chance it'll happen, is universal vouchers. And so if I'm already sending my child to a private school and I live in a mansion outside of Bexley, um, it doesn't matter where I'm residing if I'm residing in a low district. Or I live in a mansion in Bexley. I can take, I, I will get a check that I can take and pay part of the tuition, sometimes all the tuition, depending on where you're, you're, you're attending. Um, so those parents and families who are already paying private tuition because they could um, will potentially get a check to, uh, to help pay for their private school tuition. And there is a question there, a fundamental question about, wait, these are public dollars. And it's not um, a direct um, redirection of funding, but it is coming out of the same pile of money, it's education dollars. So this pile of money, um, instead of being used or helping to fund public schools, you know, regardless of the criteria, is being used then to um, pay the tuition at a private school. And um, so yeah, fundamental, you know, questions about whether our public funds should be used in that way. And there's currently a lawsuit um, uh, by 100 plus districts against the state about whether or not the system is constitutional under the Ohio Constitution, which says that you have to create a thorough and efficient uh, uh, system of common schools. And their argument is that it's creating two systems. You're funding a private school system and you're pu funding a public school system. And so it's uh, almost a, an inherent conflict uh, between the two. So it's very interesting in how it's expanding and how, um, you know, where it's going to go and, and where this lawsuit will ultimately uh, allow it to go. You uh, mentioned original intent. What, what was the original intent? And, you know, my thought is when you pair the income and the low performing school, so low-income people in low-performing schools, unlike my family that had the ability to move, to buy a house somewhere else and, and relocate, a lot of families don't have that choice. So you kind of see that, hey, this makes some sense. Um, was there more to the original intent of the uh, voucher program than that? No, I don't think so. I think it was, again, good intentions, taking families who couldn't afford that private school uh, tuition out of a very low performing school and allowing them to take their dollars elsewhere. Uh, it was less of a stipend uh, back originally. It started in Cleveland. And um, so some uh, seriously low performing schools. Um, and again, even with the expansion, you could see, okay, you know, for a family of four, $75,000, not a lot. Um, you know, those families likely, if they have more than one kid especially, can't afford to send that student to a a private school. Um, so you can still recognize the original intent with the the first expansion, but now, you know, to the 450% proposal and the universal proposal, now the, the original intent with the universal proposal is less about allowing a family to afford it. It's really not allow, you know, not, you know, uh, related to allowing a family to afford it. It's more about school choice. 
Mm -hmm. you know, the advocates. Now it's turning into a little bit of the argument you see on the charter school side, which is, you know, they should be able to send their kids to the the school that best suits them, um, you know, notwithstanding the idea that these are public funds that are ultimately flowing into private schools. And, and we talked a little bit about um, private schools can be religious, of course. They um, have very little to no due process for students. They can accept a student or kick out a student in any way that they want, really with no oversight or ability to be challenged about that. Um, so, um, you know, it, um, it has there's some real questions to be answered, you know, especially if this universal voucher, you know, program or legislation is passed and, and you know, they start doling out checks. Yeah, so let's dig down a little bit deeper and thinking of it from a from a parent or student point of view. We have a we have a private schools that are non-religious and then we have private schools that are religious. So the vouchers could go to either one, right? There's no restriction there. Correct. Um, and so uh, do those schools have um, uh, unilateral rights to accept the students, or do they have to accept certain certain students that meet certain requirements? Yeah, good question. Not all private schools are ed choice scholarship um, providers. So, you know, um, most of them, a lot of them accept it because they want to open their doors to this, this you know, stipend, basically, that can be passed on to them. But you have to be an ed choice scholarship um, provider as a servicing school. Um, even if you are a, serv- a school that, that accepts ed choice, the school has almost full discretion to accept you or not. And if you're a private school, um, you're not subject to a lot of federal laws that would make it discriminatory for a public school to decline you or service you. So they can be very selective. Now that works in both ways for the good and the bad. I mentioned that some private schools, you know, service students with autism or ADHD. Um, And those private schools are selective, but, you know, for very good reasons and uh, because they serve a population that the public school might not be able to serve as efficiently or effectively. So you could see how it works that way. But uh, by all means, John, uh, you know, they have the discretion even as a scholarship provider to decline a student. The reason that occurs to me um, is that, you know, you're sending your kid to St. Charles or the Columbus School for Girls. There could be a lot of reasons why you're doing that, but you're segregating your child out from just, you know, the the normal public education. Well, all of a sudden, if anybody can go to that school, it makes it less special for those reasons that some of those parents might send them to a military-based school or academic schools or or whatever it is. And I would think that that there's got to be some strings attached, though, to getting public funds. Like you say, uh, laws regarding discrimination and, and things like that. I mean, they are receiving public funds, so you would think that in receiving those, they'd have to at least comply with some of those those laws. I will say that as um, non-public or private schools in Ohio do have to attest that they won't discriminate um, based on uh, any any protected class for the acceptance of students. But the scholarship itself doesn't really have anything tied to it. Now, again, some of those more prestigious private schools just won't take the scholarship. 
Um, and even if they did take the scholarship, if tuition is $30,000 a year and you get $7,500 of that, you would be responsible for the remaining part, except if you're a scholarship provider, if you're a school that takes the scholarship, um, then there is also an income eligibility requirement that if you earn at or below 200% of the federal poverty level, um, that the school can't charge you the remaining tuition. So um, some of the schools that take the scholarship, um, you know, this, the uh, if they charge ten thousand dollars and the man, uh, the family meets the income eligibility requirements, they don't have to pay the remainder. That's really interesting. By the way, I'm I'm caught by the arguments on each side. You know, the one side is, gee, parents and kids ought to have a choice. The other side is, yeah, but you're draining at the financial viability of this system that the government by constitution is obligated to maintain. Somehow I like the second argument a little better, but I'm not quite sure why. Now there has been lots of commentary by the legislature in the most recent proposal, the universal vouchers and what came from the House, the 450% situation, that um, they have provided an extraordinary and finally a good amount of, of funding for traditional public schools. Um, the number has been floated you know, around a billion dollars in this budget mm -hmm. for traditional public schools. And then they're also funding this voucher program. There is a cap based on the funding, but it's a pretty big cap um, for, and they're saying these are two separate pots of money. So uh, you know, there there is a little, um, you know, uh, celebration, I guess, or at least um, touting of the current legislation saying that we've separated the two and they're coming out of two different places. But again, <laughs> it's all education funding. And if they weren't funding the voucher program, it would likely be able or available to be used for traditional public schools. It's just making a distinction for the sake of an, to support an argument. Right. Yeah. Well, the other thing is there's, uh, I guess, a presumption with that that uh, more money means better quality. And until you raise the quality, at least in people's mind, if not the actual quality of public schools, you know, how do you, how do you address that school choice argument? Because it's a good argument, right? These are, for the most part, better schools, at least in the student or, teach, or uh, uh, parent's mind, than the school that they're being uh, told they have to go to by the state of Ohio. So I think that, you know, let's definitely put more money into our schools, but we got to get a better quality uh, education out of them. Uh, and then there's no need to be spending public money on these other schools, in, in my mind. Yeah, you know, um, you mentioned earlier if there are any strings attached to taking the scholarship. And one important note is that even though these scholarship funds are flowing to private schools, um, we talked in a prior podcast about the Ohio school report card and how public schools are rated, you know, in six or seven different categories uh, one star to five star, things like um, early literacy. Um, you know, special education uh, performance index and how they do in their, um, you know, on their test scores and assessments. Um, but private schools aren't on that report card. 
So, um, you know, it's nice. It is very nice uh, in Ohio. If you're looking up a public school or a charter school, you can go type the name in the Ohio School Report Card search engine, and it, uh, it'll pull up the report card. You get an overview. You even can dig as far as, like, seeing what the test assessment and scores are um, and seeing how they rate with special education, so on and so forth. But th- with these private schools, beyond the test scores, you don't, there's no rating. They're, they're not even in the, in the uh, database. Hmm. So, um, you know, it's hard to make a comparison between your traditional public school of residence and a private school because you just not you're not looking at apples to apples you just don't have the apples on the private school side so you know let's go back to the mid-70s if this was in place Um, i'm living on the north end of columbus i can now get a voucher to go to a private school Um, how do i get there is there going to be some you know um, provision for moving these students uh, from their homes in these areas to the schools that are probably in another area yeah so long as it's within uh, 30 miles of your traditional public school and so long as the traditional public school offers transportation to its students um, then they have to transport you to the private school or they can offer you a payment in lieu of transportation is what it's called. So the school board makes a designation that, well, there's only one kid going to this private school or two or three of them, and it does, it's not worth it for us to fire up the bus every day. And so we'll make, we'll give you a payment, and there's a, a formula for that on how much that payment should be. And um, so uh, it is up to – the responsibility falls on the traditional public school to transport so long as it's within 30 miles. Mark, you practice in this area and you represent students and parents, and so um, my presumption is is a lot of that has to do with school discipline. How is the disciplinary process different in Columbus Public, say, or public schools versus, uh, you know, a private school? Yeah, good question. The, um, the school disciplinary process in public schools is driven by a Supreme Court of the United States decision which requires due process if you're going to uh, suspend a student or expel a student. Hmm. And so if um, a student, you have a right to you know, be put on notice of what you're being accused of and a right to be heard for a suspension. You have a right to, a, to appeal that suspension. Same with expulsion, right to a hearing before you're expelled, right to an appeal hearing if you are expelled. Um, so you get to show up and ask questions, tell your side of the story. Parents can come in a traditional public school. And if you're not given that, if you're not given the notice or you're not given the hearing, then you can't be suspended or expelled. Um, in private schools, they make the rules, number one. Uh, so they write in their handbook what they're going to do, you know, if you're suspended or expelled. Sometimes they list criteria, like these things will lead to expulsion. You know, bring in drugs, bring in a weapon, you know. Uh, sometimes they don't. And then sometimes they follow those rules that they put in their handbook. And if they don't, there's not much you can do about it. Arguably, there's a breach of contract because it's an implied contract with the handbook, even though it's not signed. But man, is that tough. And it's almost impossible to, to litigate or you know get a decision in your favor. When you sign up for a private school, even if you're using these public ed choice dollars, you're signing up for whatever their rules are. And they can pick and choose who they accept they can pick and choose who they kick out. 
You know, that reminds me when I was back at that Catholic grade school, one of the guys mouthed off to a nun and said, Sister, I'm sorry, you're not providing me with due notice of whatever the infraction is. We never saw him again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you think about um, some of these um, news stories about uh, what I would say uh, free speech issues in schools. Yeah. And I don't know, do you find that the uh, students that go to the public schools have a little bit more protections for free speech than you would find in the, the private or certainly the religious schools? Well, absolutely, and the number one reason is because, you know, the uh, the public school is the government, so uh, uh, the First Amendment protects you from the government. Um, now, there are limitations. It's not, uh, you know, if you can't cause a disruption or cause panic in schools, you know, it's not anything and everything in schools. They have a right to control the school, and um, so, uh, but there are First Amendment rights for students and teachers. Well, you know, we, we saw examples of that in the last several years. There was a gay teacher, I think, at Watterson. When she got outed, she was dismissed. There was an unmarried pregnant teacher at a local grade school parochial. She got dismissed. I, I heard somewhere they have to actually, I, I've heard this, I can't say it with great certainty, but sign statements as to their morality and what they will teach. So, yeah, it's a different ball game. Yeah. For students and uh, employees of the private school, first of all, the private school is not the government, so the First Amendment is not going to protect you. Second of all, um, you know, in their handbook and or in their teacher contract, you know, they agree to act in, in, you know, a godlike fashion or with morality. And that absolutely and is often the basis for dismissal of a teacher or basis of expulsion for a student. And I don't, first of all, there is no argument. I mean, um, if you're not acting in the way that, uh, you know, they believe is moral, then they, you can be dismissed. And that's what you signed up for, you know, with the private school. So, um, and a lot of uh, parents and students don't realize when they go from a public school to a private school, you can imagine how, how fast it can happen too. Mm-hmm. You know, you have you have a little bit more freedom in the public school. You may have seen some things and um, saw the repercussions or lack thereof for students. And then you have a student transfer to a to a private school and boom, you know, see you later and um, back to the public school. We um, had one of our uh, children in a, in a private school for a few years until middle school, then switched over to the Westfield Public and um, found that the threat of discipline or the actual discipline was um, a very good motivator for him, <laughs> mounting my only son, Richard. Um, but, it, it, you know, I think a lot of parents think that, boy, if you go to a private school, you have a better discipline, and, you know, some kids need that type of structure. Um, and I don't know if you find that in your, your practice with, um, you know, uh, the, the students that are getting in trouble in these private schools, are they there because they might have been troublemakers anyway? Yeah, it, it possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it, it is really on a case by case basis with the school, like what their discipline structure is, what their leadership is, whether that school is serving a population of students who can afford to be there, um, what demographic they have. So I, I've seen it work. For, for certain students, that they change scenery, they realize that uh, you know they may be you know, one or two mistakes, and they may be out of there compared to you know 
surviving a couple suspensions in the public school. So, it, yeah, it can work um, for the right students. Uh, the important part is just to be aware that, man, you know, um, you know, the due process doesn't exist by and large in a private school. So one of the things Jack and I like to think about is um, what is behind the push for these vouchers? So what is the company, the, the entity, the, you know, the motivation? I mean, who is it that thinks that kind of this universal opportunity to have a voucher is a good idea? What's your th- guess on that? Uh, number one is uh, school choice advocates. And even though charter schools don't um, necessarily benefit from the voucher, because again, these dollars mm-hmm. are going to private schools, um, they do advocate strongly for the choice of parents to choose the school that's right. So they are in full support of the voucher program. You know, another you know, typical, not the only, but another typical lobby would be from the diocese, of course, um, and, and um, you know, religious schools. And, um, you know, they're, they're certainly probably a quieter but present lobby from schools that serve students with disabilities because any way that you can find an alternative funding source to paying privately, um, that is important to those schools. Um, now, with students with disabilities, they have a few more options. There's something called the Autism Scholarship and the John Peterson Special Needs Scholarship. So that is operates very similar to uh, to the Ed Choice Scholarship, but for students with disabilities. And then they can use that scholarship in those private schools. So they have a few more options. It's the private schools who serve students with disabilities. But so that's why I say it's probably a quieter lobby on, in that regard. But certainly private schools who can benefit from saying, hey, you know, if you don't like your traditional public school, you can come here and don't have to pay tuition or, you know, have to pay half the tuition um, by and large. Mark, thanks again. Uh, Again, it was a um, a great discussion. Um, Vouchers is such a new thing to me, but certainly there's a lot of um, good that I think can come out of vouchers and probably a lot of bad too, like anything, right, Jack? Yeah, there's no such thing as everything is entirely good or entirely bad. Mark, I want to thank you too for being with us because Gonzo and I have been talking about these issues for some number of weeks, unable to resolve it. And you answered all our questions. It was a good discussion. I want to thank WOSU and our sound engineer, Kevin Petrella for helping us today. If you like what you've heard, tell a friend. We want this show to be more than just us. We want it to be all of us. We'll be back in another week or so with another social justice issue. Until then, so long.